Greetings. Welcome to Calvary Christian Fellowship. Welcome to Wednesday night. We all ready to get started? Let's um let's open up in prayer and then we'll we'll jump in. Father, we bless you. We thank you for this evening that we get to open your word together. We uh submitted and committed to you and we we open our uh hearts to hear and to receive what it is you want to speak to us. Father, I pray very specifically that you help me to communicate properly and rightly uh, from your word and, and from your spirit, what it is that uh, you're speaking, you're saying, you're, you're revealing. And Lord, we pray for those who are traveling, we pray for traveling mercies on them. And um, we pray that it wouldn't only be about what we learn as we come in here, but what we carry with us and and it touch and interact in the lives of others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're doing this study on, uh, I dare you not to bore me with the Bible. Um, This is, uh, oops, that says lesson one. Uh, Let's see, is this lesson one? Did I put the right slides in? Uh, There we go. Now you're on the right one? Okay, there we go. Lesson two, yes. So um, the main source, I always like to mention, I'm using uh, Michael Heiser's book, I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible. It's edited by John Barry. Um, and I'm just using a few a few sentences from the foreword um, that just kind of introduce uh, introduce the study, and then we're just going to jump right into the study tonight. I'm not going to do, don't need to do long introductions, because each, each week's going to stand pretty much on itself. So the Bible is accessible to everyone. Everybody has availability to the Bible, but parts of it, how many of you know parts of it can be perplexing? Anybody ever been perplexed reading the Bible? Scratch your head. Uh, it, it, it's the weird and the supposedly boring parts of the Bible that Dr. Michael Heiser addresses in this volume. So we're looking for the, the weird part. We're looking for the boring part in an effort to make it come alive again. So after reading this, you won't be bored with Bible study anymore. That's the whole goal. Um, we're going to explain passages. We're going to look at exp- passages that have confused people. They we're going to look at things that look like they're insignificant and go, why is that significant? Um, and and our goal is that we never skip a Bible passage again. That we get to this. When we get to our study Bible, like Fran was mentioned earlier, when you're reading your study Bible, and even your study Bible doesn't give you a note on the verse, you know there's a way to dig a little deeper and find something on it. So um, our, our one of the ways we're going to do this, and this is hugely important, is we're literally going to connect to the time and the place that the biblical writers lived. And we're going to see why this really applies tonight. We're going to really dig into it tonight. So our goal is to, if we first understand what it meant, we can then turn it around and apply to us what it means. Unfortunately, far too often what we do is we open up the Bible trying to say, well, what does this mean to me? And we miss what the author himself was trying to communicate to us. So we're going to go, what did it mean then? What did it mean to the writer when the writer wrote it? What did it mean to the hearers when the hearers heard it? They understood it. They knew what they were talking about. Let's get there, and then we can see if there's an application for us. So, um, and what that will end up doing, and by doing that, is helping us learn how to study the Bible on our own. 
Yeah, I should have put that. I got to remember that. I'm going to keep that quote in there. Heiser said that the Bible was written for us. It wasn't written to us. That's really good. And that's important. If we understand that, then we can learn more uh, about what it says. All right. So there, the book's broken down into two parts. Part one is Old Testament. Part two is New Testament. I'm not just going straight through. I'm taking something out of the Old Testament, and something out of New Testament each week. So this week, um, last week, what we did is looked at the ancient guide to the galaxy, the Old Testament cosmology, and how did how did they in the, in the ancient world understand the cosmology, understand the universe, and they understand that what the that the Earth that the, the that there was a great firmament, hard, fast firmament that had waters up above it, and then the sun, the moon, the stars, and God lived up above that, and then you had land that appeared out of water, and you had the abyss, the deep, the waters underneath, and there were pillars. And so we looked at all the scriptures that show that's how they understood it. What's really important to understand about the Bible is that the Bible, um, it's pre-science, not pre-truth. And so what they very often wrote is what they observed. And we use phrases the same way today, even if those phrases are not necessarily scientifically true, right? What, 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 I, what I say to you, hey, let's... Um, Let's meet tomorrow morning right at that moment when the earth is rotating and, and we can see the refraction of the sun creating colors across the sky. No, we wouldn't say that. It's how meet you at sunrise. But is the sun really rising? No. We are, we are describing it how we observe it. So much of what is, what is written to us is from the perspective of how it's observed. Yes. Yeah, so what, what they do is they take, they take the observations and they make them literal science when that's not what Scripture is doing. Okay, so if I, if I am walking across land and I see a great expanse, it looks flat, right? Because I keep walking and it looks flat. And so that's from an observed perspective. And what they're doing is, is taking, um, taking what is observed and making that, uh, making that something that's scientific that it's not. All right, so what we're going to do this week is called Walk Like an Israelite. Walk Like an Israelite. So, um, Dr. Heiser writes this. He says, cuneiform tablets changed my life. Okay, now that's really strange, right? Cuneiform tablets changed my life. I'm not kidding. As I look back on my 15 years of graduate school in biblical studies, the turning point in how I viewed the Bible was my course in Ugaritic. Now, I don't know how many of us think, oh, we're going to study. I just need to learn Ugaritic to understand the Bible. That's kind of funny. A cuneiform language, very similar to biblical Hebrew. Um, the class compelled me, to trans, uh, tra- compelled me to transform, read the Bible in context from a naive platitude to an issue of spiritual integrity. And here's the key. How many of us heard you've got to read it in context? You gotta read the Bible in context. You gotta read it in context. So when my son was in college, um, we went, he's a freshman, we went and visited his freshman dorm, and we walked in, and on his wall, they had the, the, he lived in a pod that had nine freshman boys, young men. And from time to time, one of these young men would say something that if you heard it out of context, wouldn't necessarily sound very appropriate, but it was appropriate in context. But what these guys did is they wrote down these sayings and they posted them on this wall. And so, lo and behold, one day mom and dad come visiting 
And I'm looking at this wall, reading all these things, going, oh, my goodness, they sound hugely inappropriate. And my, dad, my son's going, no, no, Dad, it's not what you think. It's not what you think. Context is important. <laughs> Context is hugely important. And so the whole goal then is to discover what is the context of Scripture. What is the context from which it was written and understand it from that context, not our context that we read into it. And that, for Dr. Heiser, is not just a platitude, that's actually spiritual integrity. That's holding, that's holding a, uh, integrity to the Word of God. So, Bible study epiphany, a revelation, an understanding about Bible study. So what is interpreting the Bible in context? What does it mean? So, does that mean learning about pottery, knowing odd customs, uh, being factually aware of who was alive at the time, what events occurred, and what timeline around the Bible. Um, so the, the problem with focusing on those types of contextual issues is they actually divorce the Bible from the ancient world in a very critical way. Is it, is it wrong to know those things? No. But that's not what context means. It actually divorces the Bible from what the, what the Bible's trying to say, from that, from that ancient world in a very critical way. What they're doing when we're looking at all those things is we're actually excluding the religious and theological ideas uh, from the context talk. When I'm focused on the pottery, I'm not thinking about what is the, the philosophical concept, the religious or theological concept that this author is bringing as, uh, as he's writing what he's writing. So here's the wrong presumption about context. That most of the Bible's theological context, content was unique to Israel. This is wrong. That most of what you read in the Bible was unique to Israel. Now we're, you'll, uh, by the time I get through all this, you'll see why this is important. Um, Heiser said this. He says, I basically thought that Israel shared some cultural customs with pagan Gentiles, like dress and diet and marriage and family structure. But I thought Israel's religious worldview was handed down from heaven, having no common links with paganism. How many people had, had thought about that, that? That what Israel did in their, in their religious and theological context was completely separated from everything else and it wasn't like anything else around them. This is really important. That's not true. Hence, now we're going to bring in the Ugaritic cuneiform tablets. Now, so stick with me a little bit, because if this is brand new and you've never heard this before, stick with me a little bit. This is all going to make sense by the time we get to the end. You're going to go, ah, okay, now I see why this is important. So uh, where was the Ugarit? Ugarit was a city-state in ancient Syria, so um, the, um, the, the region of Aram. So it's just north of, um, uh, of Israel. And it was, a, it was a coastal city over along the Mediterranean, oh, from your perspective, the Mediterranean. Um, it was uh, Israel's neighbor to the north. They used, and what's interesting about them is they used the same words and phrases to describe their gods as the Old Testament did. Many of them are word for word on how they describe their gods in, um, in, in their texts. For instance, their chief deity, his name was El. I may know that El is a Hebrew word for God. Um, it, it, it's the same when we go, refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. El is one of his names. El Shaddai, anybody heard of that? God uh, uh, Almighty. Um, but here's the difference. El of the Ugarit uh, could not in any way be considered a holy God. 
So even though they're using a, a shared term, the being was very different, was in no way the same. So honorary titles, descriptions of Ugarit, El and Baal, his primary assistant, applied to God of Israel in many Old Testament passages. How many remember when we studied Daniel? How many were here when we studied through Daniel? Okay, if you go back, and you all might remember this. When we were going through Daniel, in Daniel 7, we see this one, like the ancient, of, uh, uh, come riding on the clouds, one like a son of man, come riding on clouds to, before the ancient of day. And before him is presented all of the kingdoms of the world, and he's going to reign, right? When we look at that story, it's an awesome story. Jesus refers to it all the time. It's, it's a reference to that in that when he's on trial and he refers to being that being that they say blasphemy. He's comparing himself to God and, and they, they lead him off to crucifixion. But here's the thing. That whole story right there that Daniel's using is a motif that draws directly from the Baal cycle. When you look at Baal, guess who Baal was? He was the rider of the clouds. How's Jesus going to return? Riding on the clouds. So what's going on here? What's happening? What they're saying is, you guys, you Canaanites, you think Baal's the one who's the rider on the clouds. No, he's not the rider on the clouds. Yahweh is the rider on the clouds. That's the real cloud rider. And in fact, Jesus claims that title. So when Jesus says he's going to be riding on the clouds, this carries with it deep, ancient theological meaning that goes way back. Describing himself as, as um, uh, uh, um, uh, the polemic response to what the world does. So, Israel's prophets and use of divining rituals, casting lots, consulting the ephod. All of these pra- practices were paralleled in the ancient Near East. You could go to other, other places and they would have parallels to them. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant. How many are familiar with the Ark of the Covenant? Anybody not know what the Ark of the Covenant is? Okay, perfect. So, when the Israelites spent uh, several hundred years in Egypt, and the Egyptian pharaohs eventually enslaved them in Egypt, and then God raises up Moses to go down to Pharaoh, and, uh, and, and just does one powerful miracle after the other, and the Egyptians are delivered out of Egypt. And um, when they come out of Egypt and they go to worship God, they spend a year around what's called the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And God's presence is on top of this mountain. And Moses goes up on top of this mountain, and God says, listen, Moses, I want you to build a tabernacle. And when you build a tabernacle, it's got to follow this pattern specifically. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in other places in the scriptures that the pattern is patterned after the heavenly tabernacle, what the tabernacle in heaven is like. It tells us it's a picture of this. And so it has three sections. The outer section that you walk in, you first you have the first curtain or gate you walk through and, and you come to an altar. And then right behind the altar is this big bronze laver. They call it a sea. Um, and the, 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 the priests would do a ritual cleansing there, and they would have their sacrifices at the altar. And so people would bring their animals, things they want to sacrifice right there. But then, behind that, was another tent or p- section of the tabernacle. And that had two sections. You walk past the first gate or, or curtain, and you'd be in what's called the holy place. And in the holy place, and this, the entrance, by the way, always faced the east. 
So you're always walking in from the east to the west. And so, so as you're going, as you're going further east, on, uh, um, on your, on your right hand side, which is the south side, was the table of showbread. And then on your left hand side was the menorah. Um, and so that menorah is what lit up the holy place. They would constantly have to keep those candles lit, the, the, the lamps lit on a constant basis. They weren't candles, they were lamps that were fed by olive oil. Um, on a constant basis to keep it lit. And you, if you kept walking east, you come to the, that third room, the Holy of Holies. And right in front of that was a small altar. It was an altar of incense. And the Bible says that that altar of incense represents the very altar of incense in the heavens where our prayers go up before God. Okay? And then you had this really special curtain right here, super thick curtain. And on it um, uh, were, were um, cherubim. And when you went through there, you went into the Holy of Holies. Now, in the Holy of Holies, there was a box. And this box, it was a, um, a made of a special kind of wood, and it was all completely overlaid with gold, and it had a cover that was put on it. And that cover then molded into it were two cherubim. Cherubim are not angels. Cherubim are holy throne guardians. So a cherub, by the way, is not, you know, you ever seen those, you know, tiny little chubby angels that, you know, Valentine's Day? That's not a cherub. A cherub, when you read about them in the Bible, they are fearsome throne guardians. You do not want to come face to face with a, with a holy cherub. So, uh, um, and so they were, they were molded in, literally guarding, and this was called the mercy seat, the throne of God. And so this box, and so the priest, only the priest could touch it, and they had special poles they would put in it. And they could lift it up and carry it. And, and, and they would lead the people of Israel when they would carry it until the Spirit of God would say, here. And then they would rebuild the tabernacle and put this in the Holy of Holies. Only one person could go into the Holy of Holies, and that was only one time a year, and that was the high priest. Now, that all sounds incredibly special. And it is. It's incredibly special. It's incredibly unique. But what's fascinating is that that... That box was the ark. Of the, inside of that box, into uh, that ark, was kept just a few things. The first thing that was put in there was the Ten Commandments. The tablets from the Ten Commandments, they were kept in there. They also kept a, a jar of manna in there. And they kept Aaron's rod after Aaron passes away. They kept that in the Holy of Holies as well. Um, so, uh, uh, but it's, it's patterned after ancient Egyptian palanquin boxes. The ancient Egyptians had a similar sacred box. So they didn't come up with this. This wasn't brand new for them to come up with this Ark, uh, Ark of the Covenant box. How it used? Was it unique and different and separate? Yes. But were they the first ones to think of it and come up with it? No. God used what they were familiar with in order for them to be able to create it. Uh, something that would be for his purposes, but separate and distinct. Everybody follow that? That makes sense to everyone? Any questions on that? All right. Anybody heard of the trial by ordeal? Has anybody heard of that? This is a, uh, you read this passage, and we're not going to get into it tonight, but it's, it's one of these strange passages. Um, so if, um, if a man and woman got married, and he thought that she was um, being unfaithful, there's this special trial by ordeal that they could do. It was a, um, it was a kind of a harmless um, uh, water drink that, that she would drink 
And if she was being unfaithful, it would be demonstrated because she'd have a horrible experience as a result of drinking it. And this is kept in the book of Numbers. The whole point of pointing this, pointing this out is that this wasn't only something done in Israel. Other cultures did this as well. You found, that, found this in other cultures. All right. So terms for Israelite sacrifices are found in ancient religious, uh, Gentile religious textbooks. So a lot of the terms we use in the Bible were actually found in Gentile religious textbooks. Um, the, we, we looked at the, the, last week, we looked at the whole concept of the cosmo, cosmology, you know, that, that whole hard firmament. Um, that was shared um, throughout. These are a couple of places in the scripture. So um, oh, this was, um, so in our, in our culture, where do we call the seat of the, of the emotions and in, 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 uh, intellect? Where's the seat of your emotions? That's right. You say it out loud. Yeah, your heart, right? You know, we say it all the time. You know, man, my heart really goes out to you. Okay, do we mean that pumping muscle? Yeah, that's not what we're not talking about, pumping muscle. Man, my heart really goes. Well, in other cultures, the, the, the seed of the emotions were the kidneys. I mean, to us, that kind of sounds funny. Oh, man, my kidneys really feel for you. In, in the Bible, it, um, it's actually the bowels. Yeah, you know, which adds a whole different meaning to you. You really move me. <laughs> yeah, is that? But but that's they share this throughout the ancient world. All right. So what lessons do we learn from this? What what's implied by knowing all this? Why is this important to learn and know? Heiser puts it this way: You know, when you first learn all this, it's a little shocking um, that God. But God used that temporary discomfort to produce honesty within the biblical text. Let me say that again. You first learn all, all this is like, wait a minute, that came out of pagan culture. You know, pagans did the same thing. They shaped, they used the same language. It, how, how is this? You know, I thought God was different. And he is, and we'll see why in a minute. But he's using it. What is he doing? He's creating actually incredible integrity in the text by doing this. How? If we think like an ancient Israelite, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. You'll begin to understand how this makes sense and why it makes sense. In Israelite religion, there's literally more similarities than differences to the other religions around them. Okay? There's more things that are similar than what's different. So what does that mean about the differences? They all of a sudden become highly significant. They all of a sudden become highly significant. Follow me now. So if I want to correctly interpret the Bible, and I want to know the context... The context of the Bible is not the early church. The context of the Bible is not the Reformation. The context of the Bible is not the Puritans. The context of the Bible is not modern evangelicalism. All of those contexts, important contexts, important things to to, to be aware of, all of them are literally alien to the original authors and writers and people of the Scriptures. The correct context is the history, the, liter- the, the, the um, uh, literature, the intellect, and the religious context within which it was written. God didn't change Israel's culture when he dispensed truth. Now, let me hear this. He didn't require them to be different than who they were in order to communicate to them. 
They already had ways they saw and understand the world, so he spoke to them based on what they already saw and understood to communicate his truth to them. Don't we do that today? Don't we do the same thing? I mean, how do you teach children? Do you take a, a, a concept that's foreign to children and, and use something they completely don't understand, or do you take that concept and try to put it into the context of what they understand in order to explain it to them? Which one is actually the, the, the way that's going to actually communicate? So God didn't give Israel a new culture, dramatically distinct from its neighbors. Israel was clearly a recognizable people of its time. Just like Christians today are recognizable people of our time. If we took anybody in this room and we took any one of us and we just put us out on the street somewhere and we were the only Christian and we were put among other people who weren't Christians, you couldn't tell us the difference, could you? Why? Because we dress the same, we talk the same, we look the same. Now, after we start to act a little bit, there might be some differences. There should be. We hope there would be. And it's those differences that begin to define, not the similarities. You follow that. You follow that. Because this is the key to understanding the scriptures. By giving his, oops, you know what, I'm changing it here and I'm not changing it there for you guys, sorry. Nobody, nobody called me out on it. There we go. By giving his word within the context of the historical time period, the people in that time could understand his word. Anything different would have made no sense to the people. So, um, uh, so, um, Joe works in a very specific world, works in the world of uh, these high BTU burners. If he were to stand up here and go intricately into detail on how these burners operated, how many of us would be just like coasting along? Yeah, I get it. I follow. Exactly. <laughs> or how many of us would be, I have no clue what he's talking about. Now, if he if he started with, well, you know, I work with these things that have that, that, that create this super incredible amount of fire. Now, all of us are going to fire. I know what fire is. And begin to explain it to us in our language. That's what's going on here. So, what this means then is that inspiration, now this is, this is important because this is going to change some, for some of us, this is going to change our view of inspiration. I'm going to tell you what the Bible isn't, tell you what the Bible is. Inspiration operates within a cultural context that God chose by his sovereign wisdom. In his sovereign wisdom, this is the context he chose. This is where he gives us this inspiration. We cannot honor honor God's choice of communication strategies if we refuse to ignore the deep worldview connections that are shared here. If we ignore those, then, then we're actually not honoring God's choice. So the profound context overlaps between Israel and her neighbors was a wise theological tactic on God. God's got, there's a tactic here. He's trying to do something. What's he trying to do? Think about it for a minute. If I look at Israel and I look at all her neighbors and I go, well, this is the same as that. And this is the same as that. And this is the same as that. And in some scholars, there are skeptical scholars over the years who have come along and just said, well, you know, they're, they're, they're so, so much similar that, I mean, they're just another religion of their day. Really? Here's why it's wise and here's why it's cool. If I can see all these similarities and all of a sudden I see something different, I go, why is it different? Why is it different? If they're people of their time, 
And they're just like other people at the time. And all of a sudden, they're doing something different than everybody. What? That's significant. That's huge. That jumps out of the page. So remember a minute ago, I told you about the tabernacle and how it had three components. And you walked into the beginning and it was the, the outer court. Then you walked into the Holy of Holies. And then you, I mean, the holy place. Then you walked to the Holy of Holies. Well, what if I were to tell you, I could take you to ancient Canaan and I could take you to temple after temple after temple constructed the same way where you had an outer court, an inner court and an innermost court. It was the same. What was different? Well, when you went to the Holy of Holies of every other one, every other one had an idol in it. When you walked into the Holy of Holies of Israel, it had the Ark of the Covenant. There was no idol. Why? Because God cannot be contained by a temple. All of a sudden, the contrast of God to idols becomes huge. This is sacred space where his presence comes to meet with his people. But it's unique and distinct and different. And so we learn something by seeing the similarities in the same way. um, uh, By seeing the similarities, the differences become highlighted. And theological and revelation and religious truth is communicated to us. Does everybody follow that? Anybody not follow that? Everybody, we're on the same page? So, uh, in Israel... um, one of the things that pagan deities, the way they, they work with pagan deities, they try to flatter them, try to manipulate them, they try to sway them with insincere language. How many know that God can't be tamed? We know that God sees through all that. Sacrifices were, were shared in common. Other, other cultures had common, but they operated under specific covenantal laws. They had different meanings and they were used in different ways. Um, hang on here. So what was the main difference in sacrifices is that sacrifices would be used as appeasing, a means to manipulate by others. What is God looking for? For, for God, the significant difference is what he's looking for is someone who brings a sacrifice not in order to get to God, but brings a sacrifice because their heart is already connected to him. He's looking for those who have believing loyalty. And the sacrifice demonstrates their faith, not as a means to manipulate God to to get something from him. Throughout the Bible, from the beginning, believers always have to come first in faith. And if I come in faith, then I bring an offering. I bring a sacrifice. Now, when we come to the New Testament, what sacrifice is it that we're to bring? Well, what's Romans 1 say? Yeah, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God. Now, because we've seen over and over where the believer comes first, bringing this offering, laying it before God. Now, in the same way Christ laid his life for us, we follow that example in returning our lives back to him. Um, so, that's the, the lesson out of the Old Testament. There was something else I wanted to tell you about it. Any questions on that? I know what I wanted to, I know what it was. I'll tell you where I think this applies to us the most. Um, has anyone here, I mean, and take some, see if we can have a little discussion on this. Has anyone here, um, uh, heard of, um, um, wrestled with the concept that there are things that we do in celebrating Christ that borrow from 
pagan practices. Anybody ever wrestled with that before? I'll tell you the biggest one I've heard over and over. Uh, I've heard two, two big ones. The biggest one I've heard is Christmas. We're, we're just a couple of weeks away from celebrating Christmas. And I've heard, well, you know, ancient, in the ancient world they had Christmas trees and the Druids had Christmas trees and so we shouldn't have Christmas trees because that was pagan. Um, in the ancient world they did this and, and, and we shouldn't do that because that's what the pagans did. Now, how many here as believers would put up a Christmas tree in order to worship an idol like a, like a, like a Druid? Anybody? Just checking. I mean, somebody might say yes. I'm, <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, so here's the point. The point is, if that is, if, if that's what you're actually worried about, then you can never wear a tie. Because t- neckties actually come from pagan practices. In fact, um, if you say that you're going to meet somebody for lunch on Thursday, okay, Thursday is Thor's day. The Norse god Thor. So are you sitting down to a sacrificial meal with your friend for Thor? You see, we have pulled in, all, we have all kinds of things, the, the, many of the names of the months, many of the na- days of the week. Um, June from the god Juno, uh, Mo- uh, Monday from the moon god, um, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, Saturday, Saturn, Sunday, the sun. There's so many things in our culture that are pulled from these things. Now, when would it be inappropriate? It would be inappropriate if I actually had a friend who was, who was pagan worshiping Thor and saw Thursdays as a holy day to say, hey, let's meet on your, you know, and, and, and I exacerbated that false uh, worship, then that would be inappropriate. But when it, when it doesn't carry its meaning any longer, and in fact, I can use it, uh, um, um, you know, not even, it's not even like trying to use it. It's just part of culture in, in, in the way that we are, uh, uh, how we are living our lives. It's part of our culture. And I'm bringing Christ into it. It becomes redeemed. In the same way, a palaquin can become redeemed and become the ark. In the same way, the tabernacle can become redeemed and become the holy place of God. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, just for for the uh, those listening in and for the recording, um, the the comment was that you know where a drawing line needs to be individually in our hearts is is our own faith. Um, uh, scripture says anything that is not done in faith is sin. So, if you if for whatever reason you personally have a connection to something. Um, that and it's causing you a stumbling block, then you need to say no. I love, look up Susanna Wesley's definition of sin. She said, no matter what a thing is, even if it's the, uh, and I'm, I'm really paraphrasing here, the most you know, awesome thing in the world, if it takes your heart and turns you away from God and turns you away from your softness before him and hearing his voice, then for you, that's sin. Even if it's something that's a blessing to someone else. And I, and I, I, I agree with that. We have to be sensitive um, so there, there's, there's a, there are things in which we may have a freedom for worship for one person that someone else. But I'm talking about culturally here. By the way, well, I wouldn't even go there. I do have a lesson on it. Oh, no, I'm not going to. Sorry. That's commercial. Ask me later. Do what? Yeah, I got, 
So all I was going to say is um, I literally have an entire lesson of the origins of um, uh, Christian Christmas. And let me tell you, I'll just give you this. It's not Saturnalia. It's not patterned after um, ancient Roman pagan holiday. Yeah. I know people are going, what? Been hearing that for years. No, it's actually the other way around. But that's a different lesson for a different time. You can ask me. You have to, you have to actually know the history to get there. All right. Part two. Um, the New Testament. So we're going to look at a principle in the New Testament. We're going to change courses. This is going to be fun. Um, Last week we looked at burying hell, right? The gates of hell in cosmic geography and terrestrial geography and Jesus declaring war. And we, we, you know, we got into that, uh, pretty in depth last week. That, um, that, that whole concept that, um, the gates are defensive and we are, we are called to literally call, call people out of, um, the realm of darkness into the realm of light. So we, we talked to that last week. This week we're going to talk about my guardian angel. Does that sound interesting? Anybody, is anybody familiar with the term my guardian angel? All right. Nobody. Nobody heard of a guardian angel? All right. We got a lot to talk about. So anybody heard this before? Every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. That's from an old movie. Um, from, uh, it's a wonderful life. There's a, a real old movie. A lot of a lot of people will see it, you know, every year around this time, around Christmas time. And you got this guy, uh, as an angel's name, Clarence, and he's helping out George Bailey. And uh, George Bailey discovers the unseen, but what he really discovers is what he considered his tremendously insignificant, mundane life was actually changing the lives of others. What he considered a life that was mundane and where he didn't get to do all the things he wanted to do, he actually discovered his life had tremendous meaning. And, and, and um, his existence transformed his community in ways he didn't even know it was happening just by him being him. So that was it's a cool movie. It's a great tale. Um, it's full of hope. Uh, the principle I 100% uh, agree with. But what about the theology? Are, are there guardian angels like Clarence? Is that really biblical? Is that really a biblical idea? Well, I don't think every time you hear a bell ringing, an angel's going, I don't think I've seen that in the Bible anywhere. So, in fact, here's a fact for you. Here's a fun fact. You can't find anywhere in the Bible where an angel appears and they have wings. Angels in the Bible have all, always appear as men. In fact, I'm going to show you a scripture that points that out later, and that's a commercial. We'll get there. All right. So, what does Jesus actually suggest about guardian angels? Does he give us any clue about guardian angels? Well, in fact, he does. If we turn to the gospel and we go to Matthew 18, verse 10, it says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. So the, the children were trying to come to Jesus, and people were trying to bring their children to Jesus. And, and, and uh, the disciples were like, oh, keep the children away. Keep them, keep them back. And he's like, no, 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 no. Let the children come to me. He says, don't despise children coming to me. Children can know Jesus just as much as anybody else. This is, for, this is for us as parents. We literally need to be evangelizing our children from birth. I started evangelizing my children in the womb. I remember telling them from infancy, you are going to have to make your own choice and decision to fo- follow Jesus. Mommy and Daddy have made that choice and decision. That's our choice and decision. But just because we have doesn't mean you have. You need to make your own choice and decision. In this house, we're going to serve the Lord, but the choice and decision for you in your life is your choice. 
And so Jesus wants children to come to him. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Anybody ever read that verse before? Jesus is telling let the kids come to me. Why? Because they got angels. Every one of them has an angel in heaven who's standing before God. They're interceding on behalf of that child. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Jesus affirms that children have angels representing them before God. How many have heard that? So you've heard it? All right. Where did Matthew get this idea? Where does this come from? Why is... Why is Matthew writing this? I mean, he got it from Jesus, obviously. But was this in uh, um, uh, a Jewish theological concept? Was this coming out of the scriptural uh, um, milieu um, that, that was the second temple? The book of Job represents angels as mediators between God and people. So if we go back to, to this is some of the ancient Jewish literature in, from the, in the scripture. Um, so if we go to Job, we see that Eliphaz is challenging Job in, in the story. This is in chapter 5, verse 1. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? The word holy ones, um, uh, kedoshim, in, in Hebrew is, uh, is related to the Greek word hagaioi, which is holy ones, which from which we get saints, get the word saints. It's a reference to angels in the Old Testament. It refers to um, divine beings. Over and over and over again. So, which one of the whole, which one of the, uh, of the divine beings are you, um, are you, are, are you turning to? Here's Eliphaz is presuming that these angels, these divine beings, are acting as mediators between God and Job. This was a common belief in the ancient biblical world. They commonly believe this. Ancient Mesopotamians, you can see it. Uh, uh, there's some other places you can see it in the Book of Acts with the story of Stephen. You can see it in Hebrews. In the first couple of chapters, when they talk about the law of God was mediated between God and Moses by angels. It's in, it's in, it's in your Bibles. You can look it up. Um, in ancient Mesopotamians, so Mesopotamia is that, um, that area, kind of like Iraq, Iran, that, that general region, um, believed that humans had personal gods who could appeal for them before the assembly of the gods. So, do we have a mediator? Absolutely, Jesus through the death and resur- through his death and resurrection, Jesus is our mediator before God. In fact, it tells us we have two intercessors. It says the Spirit intercedes for us. It says Jesus intercedes for us. Um, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Yet angels still have an intermediate ministry to believers. Angels are still operating in that place. Here it is in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are they, referencing angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Who are those who are to inherit salvation? Believers. Believers are the ones who are to inherit salvation. What is the responsibility of angels? To minister to believers. That's what he's saying right here. They're sent out to serve, and he's actually pulling that from the Old Testament. The New Testament is filled with examples of angels uh, in the lives of believers. Um, anybody remember this one? So you had the three closest disciples. Who knows the names of the three closest disciples to Jesus? John, Peter, 
And James, okay, that was worth uh, 15 points each. So if you said all three, that's 45 points. All right. So, um, yeah, so th- these three, these were kind of like the, the, the closest of the 12 to Jesus. Well, um, not long after the death, burial, and resurrection, the ascension, not long after Pentecost, a few years, um, Herod um, decides that he's, he's super popular with the people and wants to get more popularity, and they don't really like um, these believers and what's going on, and he takes James and he beheads him, kills him. And he sees that this one favor among certain groups of the Jews in the, uh, in the region and so he takes Peter and says, ah, oh, Peter's next. And he puts him in jail. And so here's Peter in jail, and the next morning, he's about to be killed. What happens? In the middle of the night, he, in fact, he thinks he's dreaming. He thinks it's a vision. In the middle of the night, an angel appears to him, wakes him up, which cracks me up that he's asleep. I'm like, how many of us are like just sleeping, you know, tomorrow morning you're going to be beheaded, you know, it's over. And you're just resting away, getting a good night's sleep. That's awesome. That is complete trust in God. And so, but an angel comes and wakes him up and says, uh, stand up. And the, and the chains literally fall off him. He's a guard right here. And so this is why he thinks he's seeing a vision. Because all of a sudden the, 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 the gates just open up. The guards are blinded. Anybody seen Star Wars? You are not seeing this. You know. <laughs> This is not what you think it is. You know, it's like, you know, this happens, this happened, this isn't a movie, this happened in real life. This angel literally escorts him out of the jail and then tells him, look, go tell your friends that you're out. Why? Because they're down there praying for him to get out. Praying for his salvation. Go tell your friends that you got out and then get out of town. And so, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. He was asleep. And he said, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. <laughs> I think that's a riot. When they had passed the... I mean, listen, you got to read this. This was a real person. This really happened. What would you do? This can't be real. This can't be real. This can't be happening. Because, it, because it's, it's short-circuiting his mind as much as it would short-circuit our minds. Right? He's a fisherman. He understands the reality of real life. These things don't happen every day. And so it's short-circuiting his mind in the same way it would be short-circuiting ours. They came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them on its own accord. <laughs> the, the, the whole city gate just opened up. I could tell you another story, but I keep going. I, I'm, I'm getting behind. And they went out, and they went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord Jesus sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. How is he sure? Because he's outside the gate. The angel's gone. He's like, what do I do now? I mean, it's kind of obvious. Now I'm sure. <laughs> when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered and they were praying together. Now, catch this. He knocks at the door of the gateway and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. 
She's so happy that Peter's there, she leaves him. <laughs> so they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting, no, it's so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. Okay, all right, if I actually thought she was seeing, I'd still want to go see who's at the gate. Whether it's him or an angel, one way or the other, this has got to be pretty cool. Anyway, uh, um, that's, that's what this story tells us. It's interesting. They don't believe it's Peter. They actually believe, and this is the point, that it could be his angel. Do you see the point we've got to get from the story is that they understood the guardian angel. Oh, you're not seeing Peter. You're seeing his angel. Isn't that fascinating? Now, how many remember our study of Daniel when we looked at Daniel chapter 10? And Daniel is praying for 21 days. He's fasting and he's praying. And all of a sudden, this divine being shows up. And he says, you know, for 21 days, you've been praying. But from the moment you started praying, God sent me. And all of a sudden, Daniel's seeing this divine being. And he actually sees two other angels there with him. And, and uh, what goes on? He says, listen, listen, the reason why it took me 21 days to get here is that the principality over Persia was stopping me. He said, but the angel that's responsible for Israel, his name is Michael. He's an archangel. This is all in Daniel chapter 10, if you, if you want to see it. I'm, I'm literally quoting it. He said, that, that, that angel came and helped me fight in the spirit so I could get here. And in fact, I need to get back there as quickly as possible. So I need to hurry up and tell you what it is God wants you to know. And, and we get this, this, see, we're not told a whole lot about this in the scripture because we don't need to know all about it. But we're told enough to know that there are things going on in the spirit world that are paralleling things going on in the physical world. And what happens in the physical world affects what happens in the spiritual world. And what happens in the spiritual world affects what happens in the spiritual world. Physical world. That's why Paul wrote, Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, against principalities, against rulers, against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. We need to be aware that the devil has schemes and we have been given spiritual warfare, I mean, uh, um, uh, uh, weapons that we need to put on, spiritual armor that we need to put on in order to withstand and stand. So this whole concept of spiritual beings who are on our side is all throughout scripture. It's part of this. And they understood it. In fact, they were questioning. In early Christian belief, humans had a, uh, a, 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 a celestial double, an angel attached to the person for their welfare. And this, this was a this was our, our belief of early believers. So the concept of an angelic guardianship and activity in our lives is something we've often left to our imagination. I wonder if we have, you know, it's like, how many ever said, you know, you get a near miss and you go, ooh, my guardian angel just lost a wing on that one. <laughs> That was a close call. You know, anybody heard that before? Said I've said it. You know, like, apparently, Hollywood gets a few things right, but don't get over overexcited. <laughs> don't get your theology from Hollywood. <laughs> God's agents are commissioned to act on our behalf at His direction. God's agents are commissioned to act on our behalf at His direction. Even Jesus, it tells us He's in the garden. Um, and he's weeping before the Father, asking if there be any other way, sweating blood. And it tells us the angels are ministering to him as he's about to give his life and sacrifice on the cross. Um, we see angels throughout the scriptures like this, ministering to humans. All right, now, 
Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Um, this is the scripture I told you about before. This is an actual instruction to us. Here's the, the instruction in the book of Hebrews. gets to near the end of the book. says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Why? For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. How could they be unaware? Because they don't have wings. They appear as men. You don't know it. Isn't that fascinating? That doesn't mean we can't discern who they are. Very often, um, uh, we um, we can. And in fact, this is a study for another time. If you read uh, um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first first cha- uh, uh, first letter to the Corinthians, chapter twelve, one of the things he talks about in there is the ability to discern spirits. And there are people who have who have discerned, understood. Um, spirits. All right. Now I'm going to close out with this, and then we'll have some conversation. Um, we did a study a while back. This is um, by a, a scholar, um, a professor. His name is J.P. Moreland. He's um, uh, one of the top philosophy professors in the United States. Um, he's a professor of philosophy at Talbot University and uh, um, Talbot Seminary, um, which is connected to Biola University. Um, it's a um, he's an amazing scholar. I've seen him debate. He's incredible, and he uh, wrote this book called "A Simple Guide to Experience Miracles," and in it he shares a lot of testimonies and stories. He talks about prayer, efficacious prayer. He um, he talks about healings. He talks about various things. Um, I highly recommend the book. We we actually studied through it at one point in time. What I liked about it, and it's interesting because it's not a typical kind of book that I would actually normally pick up and read. Um, when, but I actually saw J.P. Moreland uh, um, um, interviewed, and I was listening to the interview, and I'm going, wow, this is fascinating. And then I got the book, and I read it, and it was even more fascinating than the interview. I said, we need, to, we need to study through this. Now, one of the things that he does is he goes through, and he gives lots of stories and testimonies. And, one, and so some of these testimonies, he has some very specific testimonies about guardian angels. Um, and so um, I thought it would be a great way to close this section on actually reading this section. So I'm going to read it to you. Reading this section, encouraging credible accounts of angelic manifestations. So we just studied it theologically. We see that it comes out of the Old Testament. We see it comes through the New Testament. We see early believers believed it. Um, now what we're going to look at is look at this um, experientially, empirically. We're going to see some examples of this today in the lives of believers. So I'm just pulling one particular story because it's a long one. Get his book. He's got other ones if you're interested. Um, but this is really fascinating. So, And it's particularly fascinating because he starts off very skeptically, and then it develops from there. But I'm not going to tell you anymore. You'll see. All right. This is what he says. And this is Dr. Moreland um, speaking for himself. For our own spiritual growth, it is crucial to see that we can actually know, not blindly believe, and that's important. I'm not asking anybody to blindly believe, I'm asking to know. Now, know still takes faith, but that's not blind belief. That the supernatural realm is real. Among other things, our knowledge of the supernatural is grounded in credible supernatural experiences. Credible being the uh, 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 um, active word there. This claim may sound audacious. But I actually know that three guardian angels have been with me since at least the year 2005. Now, when I read, I was like, yeah, that does sound a little audacious. <laughs> How do you know this? 
I'm interested to see how you get there. And I want to explain to you how I know this. In what, in what follows, I will refrain from using any individual's real names to protect their anonymity. So we're, he's going to tell this story, but the names are, are changed. But of all the emails I mentioned, but all of the emails I mentioned are in my off, file in my office. So he's got all the data for it. In May 2005, I spoke at a retreat for a church. This was in Seattle. Now, after my first talk on Friday night, a woman rushed up to me, and I could tell she was on a mission. After thanking me, she rather boldly shared that during my entire 50-minute lecture, she had seen three angels surrounding me, a tall one behind me and two shorter ones on each side. Well, to be honest, I thought she was either crazy or simply seeking attention. So I thanked her, but completely dismissed what she said. You know, how many of us would have done the same thing? Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's nice. Yes. Anything else I can pray for you about? The pastor conveyed to me afterward that she was a very mature believer. But that didn't matter to me since I had zero inclination to believe her and promptly forgot about what she had said. Or so I thought. Several months later, on August 24th, this was in 2005, Biola's fall semester began. Later the next week, I started experiencing some personal difficulties that I believe had a spiritual cause. So one night in bed, I prayed for something that I had never asked the Lord for in my 37 years as a Christian. I remember the woman who had shared about the angels on my visit to Seattle. And I told the Lord that I had no idea if those three angels in Seattle were real. But if they were, I wanted him to make sure they were still with me and protecting me. I also asked if he could somehow let me know they were present. I had never asked for angelic protection before. And I went to sleep that night, and in the days that followed, everything seemed to be business as usual. But as I was later to learn, things were not as they appear. On September 21st, I received an email from a philosophy graduate student named Joe, in which he rather embarrassingly divulged that that the prior week, while sitting in my metaphysics class next to the window in Myers Hall 109 about About halfway into my lecture, he suddenly saw three angels surrounding me. Now, this guy, Joe, he's got no idea. He has no idea about the prayer. He has no idea about this woman or anything like that. The scene lasted for about 10 to 15 minutes, and then it was over. He waited to share it with me out out of fear. um, He waited to share it with me out of fear of looking foolish, but several other graduate students had urged him to do so. The next day after sending the email, James Joe came to my office at my request. He told me that he was certain that the three angels had been there in the room and not just in his head. He shared how at first he had thought he was just seeing things. So he had started rubbing his eyes vigorously, but they remained there. I mean, put yourself, what are you, what are you doing? You're sitting there watching your professor and all of a sudden three angels appear. You know, you're like, oh, I need to get more sleep, you know. (laughs) What are you doing? How are you handling this? He described them as wearing white robes, though he could not see their faces, and he also brought me a drawing of the scene he had made. A taller angel was behind me, and two shorter ones on each side. Yeah, the exact same pattern as the woman had seen. As an aside, a few years later, I described this incident while I was lecturing in Georgia. One person in the audience, Frank Waller, had been a graduate student in the same class on the day Joe saw the angels. 
Frank had sat two seats behind Joe, and he recalled to me one day earlier in the semester when he had noticed that Joe seemed extremely agitated and was rubbing his eyes in a way he had never seen him do either before that time or after. So he's watching this guy see the angels going, Joe, what's what's wrong with him? Frank remembered the incident because he had almost gotten out of his seat to ask Joe if he could escort him to the restroom to wash his eyes out. But before he could do so, Joe stopped. Now, three days after the meeting with Joe, now this is Monday, September 25th, I was addressing a Biola student group where I shared my two incidents with the, uh, about, with the three angels. That evening, I received another email from a student who attended my lecture. After sharing her name, she noted that for years she had been blessed with a gift of discernment and the ability to see in the spiritual realm. What she said next was a shock. I have seen your three angels even before you mentioned it, and so when you did, I was shocked you knew they were there. (laughs) I never saw that student again, but she had no reason to fabricate the story and risk the embarrassment of being exposed. But wait, that's not all. (laughs) There's more. Am I not on the same page? Thank you. Around ten years later, on May 2nd, This is 10 years later, May 2nd, 2015. I received an email from a lawyer who works in Ontario, California. This is a lawyer in Ontario. Three years earlier, he had called me out of the blue, and I'd never met him or even heard of him. He shared with me that he suffered from severe anxiety and asked if he could meet with me at my campus office. We had a meaningful time together before he left, and I I asked him to get down on his knees. I laid hands on him and prayed over him for healing. After our time of prayer, he left, and I never heard from him again until the email he sent me three years later. In the email, he said there was something he wanted to share with me ever since our meeting, but had been afraid to do so until now. He wrote that when he got down on his knees so I could pray for him, he sensed presences entering my office, opening his eyes, This is made rather emphatic in his email. He observed three angels surrounding me, one who was taller than the other two. In response to my my reply to his email, he affirmed that he was absolutely certain that he had seen three angels in the room and that he had absolutely no knowledge of any of my prior experiences that I had shared with you above. And he added that the experience was life-changing for him. For me... This was solid evidential confirmation of the existence of my three guardian angels. But there's still one more important event I wish to share. Mark Stevens, a good buddy of mine, he traveled with me to an apologetics conference. This is in October 26, 27, 2018. So this is just a few years back. This is in Beaverton, Oregon. So I was a keynote speaker at the conference. And I gave an hour-long lecture on the existence of God that Saturday morning to a crowd of about 350 people. That afternoon, the conference concluded with a Q&A time with all the conference speakers, but there was a 15-minute break before that session. So I was sitting at the book table in the lobby with Mark and two administrative assistants sitting right next to me when a woman in her 40s approached the book table to talk to me. After introducing herself, she noted that after being a Jewish atheist all her life, 18 months ago, she had given her life to, to Jesus. So uh, she had just given her life to Christ for about 18 months. She expressed gratitude for the growth she had experienced from some of my books. Then she said this, 
and I'm paraphrasing a bit here from memory. Dr. Moreland, I want to tell you that during your lecture this morning, I saw angels on the stage with you. What cracks me up about her testimony and her story, she's too young of a believer to, 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 to you know, to, um, uh, to be afraid to tell her. <laughs> she's like, oh, I saw angels, you know, brand new believer. When she said this, I interrupted her and asked Mark and the two administrative assistants to listen to what she would say next so I would have three eyewitnesses who could vouch for this in- incident. I asked her to tell me more and whether she had any idea how many angels there were. She said, there were three angels. I asked her if she knew where they were located in relation to me. And she replied with confidence in her voice that they were standing around me. Then I asked her if she noticed anything about their size. She responded, a tall angel was standing behind me and two shorter ones on each side. Mark and the two assistants already knew of my previous encounters and were all amazed by how precise this woman's details were. She seemed genuinely puzzled by the question, but said, uh, no. Wait a minute. Yeah. Um, It was evident to all of us that she had no idea why she was asking this. Well, I have never seen these angelic beings, I believe the testimonial evidence I've given about my guardian angels would stand up almost anywhere, even in a court of law. The truth is that the supernatural world is all around us. And this is what we need to walk away from here. The supernatural world, the, the veil between this and the spirit world is super thin. C.S. Lewis writes about it. Multiple scholars talk about it and write about this. And please remember, he, Dr. Moreland says, there's nothing special about me. He says, I hope the evidence I share will encourage you that God has sent angels to guide, to protect, and minister to you as well. We are not on our own in this world. Angelic manifestations happen frequently to all kinds of people. So here's the point. Well, you know, have I ever seen an angel? No, I've never seen one. Do I know people who've, who've uh, said they've seen angels? Sure, I have. I don't know I ever, I ever will. I don't need to. I know that I have a mediator. His name's Jesus Christ. I know I have the Holy Spirit with me. But, but I also know that we have a spiritual battle and that there are beings in, beings in the spirit world that operate in conjunction with beings in the physical world. And you see them all throughout Scripture. God's given me multiple dreams. I've seen things ahead of time um, and, and had opportunities in this. Is it, The question is we live in a time and we live in a culture this kind of ties the whole lesson together. Because we, we look at the Bible from our cultural lenses. We live in a post-enlightenment society. In a post-enlightenment society, everything's about the material world. The material world's what exists. But God is spirit. He's not material. God is spirit. He's not material. And he's what created all of this. And Hebrews tells us that it's his word that upholds all this physical. What that means is the reality of the spirit world is more real than this concrete I'm standing on. The reality of the spirit world is more real than the concrete I'm standing on. Why? Because this world's temporary. This is going away. Jesus is coming back. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And when we understand this, we will understand we're not fighting a battle that's flesh and blood. We're fighting a battle that is spirit. People are not our enemies. The enemy is our enemy. And God has put has spiritual beings on our side in the same way that he's on our side. Um, 
And so, uh, learning to be sensitive to the Spirit as well as learning the truth of the Scriptures goes hand in hand. The word, the, the word of God is the sword in our hand. It's the Spirit of God that illuminates it in us and helps us to see and understand it. They go together. They're not separate. I can't tell you how many people I've seen who don't have the Spirit. They try to read the Bible and I don't have a clue. I don't know what this is. The Scripture actually says it is spiritual and has to be discerned in the Spirit. Um, so uh, these things are a very real part of our walk and our life as a believer. And, and it is completely appropriate to ask God to, to make them real in our lives in a way that glorifies him, in a way that's according to his word, in a way that touches and reaches other people. Amen? Um, I would also add this. In the Christian world, it's, it's the Western Christianity that has more of a problem than this than most of Christianity. You know, most of Christianity is not Western Christianity, by the way. Most of Christianity is not Western Christianity. It's Western Christianity that is more of the enlightenment, you know, materialistic Christianity. Um, you know, uh, if you talk to, you know, well, I'll save that for the Q&A time. Let me pray. Let me close right now in prayer and we can open this up for conversation, but I'll turn the recording off so we can talk freely and nobody has to worry about, you know, being going out over the Internet or anything like that. Just me. Father, we bless you. I pray that you, that we would desire to understand the fullness of our salvation. The fullness of who we are as created beings. Spirit, soul, and body. The fullness of what it means to be in the kingdom of God, to have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of your love. To be ambassadors of that kingdom. To wrestle not with flesh and blood, but to to wrestle in the spirit on behalf of flesh and blood. Lord, make these things real to us. Just as they were real to Peter. And to Paul. And to Job. And just as they are real to so many others. We bless you and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, Brian, let me know when we're turned off.